This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by the Destination Leadership Consortium, a collection of some of the sector's top consultants that have created a symposium of CEO and board leadership called, not surprisingly, Board Leadership for Destinations. The first edition last January was a raging success, and the next symposium has just been announced for January 24, 25, and 26 in Phoenix, Arizona. Designed for DMO CEO, board chair, and an incoming leader, you can learn more at destinationleadershipconsortium.com. And now onto our show. Rick Antonson has worked as a short order cook, a warehouse roustabout, a newsboy, a forklift driver, a movie reviewer, a swimming pool builder, a snow shoveler, and has hawked hot dogs at football games. He was a jam factory stiff, a seesaw maker, all-star catcher in Little League, postman, stoker poker in a lumber mill, automobile beautician at a used car lot, strawberry picker, and a graphic arts salesman. He's been a History Magazine publisher, a tourism executive, CEO of Tourism Vancouver, and a past chair of Destinations International. He chaired the North America's longest one-day canoe race and has written nonfiction books about travels in dangerous places. He and his wife Janice live on Predator Ridge in British Columbia, nearby 250 wineries, that just sounds like heaven, often referred to as Canada's Napa Valley. When not spinning yarns, he speaks around the world on the concept of cathedral thinking. Rick Antonson, welcome back to DMOU. Thank you for welcoming me back. This, you know, it's been a while since we've had a chat like this, and then it was even a while back before that. But this is, I think, my third opportunity that you've given me to be on your show and and talk about DMOs. This is it. You are at the top of the leaderboard. This is like SNL, right? You've got you've got the third jersey, right? Here we go. So it, it was. It was. It was honestly. It was four years ago that you were our very first guest on the reinvented DMOU, just as you had been our first guest on the original DMOU teleseminar back in two thousand and two. You know, and I listened back to those episodes the other evening, and you suggested that your new book about the Rocky Mountaineer would be coming out in 2020. It actually dropped earlier this year. What the hell happened? COVID interrupt us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I figured there was that, but it also seems like there was some other things that happened beyond COVID. Well, the book was ready to come out in 2020. That had been the plan. Rocky Mountaineer, which has just been recognized by a major publication as as the best in the world, the best train trip in the world, was doing so well, running between Banff and the Canadian Rockies and Vancouver, and then back up from Vancouver to Whistler and up to Jasper. Everything was going really well. And it really happened that with COVID, that those folks had liked this new book so much, they said to the publisher they wanted to take a whole swack of copies. And then out of the blue, because of COVID, they were forced to abandon or suspend, as a better wow. term, their, uh, their, their season. And then the next year, not operate and then begin to struggle back. So 
everyone involved with the book, the publisher or myself as the author thought, let's just take a deep breath because the world of travel was changing and the book should come out post what could have been a, a four month COVID mm -hmm. uh, disruption or it turned out to be much longer. And we needed to make sure that the book, when it did come out, reflected a little bit about what we had learned, all of us, in the world of destination marketing or product marketing or the world of, of being a writer. And so the book, when it, when it did come out uh, just this spring in, in 2023, has uh, a foreword that reflects those lessons learned. Yeah, and you know, it's something that I hadn't thought of originally is this book stands on its own regardless of time. But for it to come out now when I, as an experienced seeker, can go on the Rocky Mountaineer in the next few months, few years, it makes a lot of sense. Because if I had read it in 2020 or 2021, it may have slipped from my consciousness. And so there's a real duality there. So I appreciate that. Us in the world of, of destination marketing or those of us who enjoy traveling or, or, or maybe have to travel for business learned something that I think we should never forget. And that's that we took for granted the ability to travel and the freedom to travel and the short-term decision to travel, all of which got suspended for a mm -hmm. better part of, of two or more years. And I don't think any of us ever again will take for granted that marketing we're doing will, will just naturally deliver people without any possible interruption. We all know now to have contingency plans, to better inform people, to have better cancellation policies, to seek better cancellation policies if we are travelers. All manner of things in the world of destination marketing got changed and post COVID, we should never again take for granted the freedom of ourselves or our clients or others to, uh, to travel. Well said. Okay, first question. As one of the thought leaders in destination marketing over the past number of decades, we always value your take on the evolution of our craft, and we'll get to that later in this episode. But this time around, I'm more intrigued about the new book, which is called Train Beyond the Mountains, Journey of the Rocky Mountaineer. So with our first question, let's dive into why this book. The first draft was written, as we said, before the plague. And yet for me, as I read it, it really captured not just the lure of an old world experience, but the sheer joy of multi-generational travel and getting to see the world through both your eyes and those of others, both those related, as in Riley, your grandson, but also those who travel with you. That all seems pretty post-COVID. So just how clairvoyant are you, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, there's a, a few ways I'd, I'd like to think about answering that. One, an early decision for any traveler is, do you go on your own or do you go with someone else? And I invited 10-year-old grandson Riley to come along and he, he jumped at it. Mm -hmm. What it gave me was an opportunity to see travel 
train travel, which I'd done a lot of on my own or with my wife, Janice, or with my two sons, Brent and Sean. But it gave me a chance to see this journey through eyes that were one seventh the age of mine. And someone who was you know, coming up to my waist, so looked at things at a lower lower level uh, perspective, mm-hmm. to have his questions and yeah. his engagement with others. So that was part of, of the impetus. The other is that most of you know my, my four earlier travel books were, three of them were to places that would be dangerous for you and I to go together right now, or complicated. So you and I couldn't go to Timbuktu. So the book Timbuktu for a haircut right. yep. captures a, a moment in time but it's not something that a reader can replicate in their own planning for, hey, in six months, I'm going to go on a journey like that. Train Beyond the Mountains covers the journeys on the Rocky Mountaineer in a way that others can replicate that journey. They can do, go do the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, mm-hmm. end up in Vancouver and British Columbia, or go the other way. And I hope to. But the other part is that the history told in this book is... Yes, a lot about trains around the world, but it's also about a a railway, the Canadian Pacific Railway, that bound Canada together and made this country a nation. There's that. The third bit that I'll segue in with is that being on the Rocky Mountaineer is like in your coach. And these are are two-level coaches. The, 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 The roofs are actually almost all glass. Yeah. And you've got maybe 70 passenger there lots of ability to walk around it's like being in an elaborate business class seat with all the gadgets and and stuff and then below that is an amazing amazing dining room but at the very back is a an an area open air area platform so you've got those those three components but in every coach it's like being in a boat with with the United Nations, there are people from Australia, there's people from Germany, there's people from the United States, people from Canada, from Mexico, from you name it, Israel, people from all over Japan on, on our trip. So you're constantly in conversation with people, many of whom have traveled trains that I drool about one day traveling on. So I got their stories that I could incorporate in the book and live vicariously with them about other railways around the world. So it become the, the book has become one that is quite international in its view about the world of train travel. And really taking it back, there's that classic Simon and Garfunkel song where, you know, the two people are traveling on a bus and they're they're looking at other people on the bus and they're saying, I think he's a spy. I think she's this. And and you had that experience with a couple of people who just for some reason, you say that a lot of people on trains, they drop their veneer and they are willing to share their whole life story. And yet there are some who you just go, they're not dropping their veneer. <laughs> and what's their story, right? Or what's their secret? And yeah. the, 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 the writer Paul Thoreau once said that, I'm paraphrasing, but, but that that train travel is the last word in truth serum. <laughs> and, and part of it is you've got time together. You can move around. You're not looking at the back of someone's head or awkwardly just to your left. You can have, every time you sit down for a meal, it's, it's with a different configuration of someone across from you or someone um, beside you in the aisle and, and the bantering that the, 
the, the, all of the stuff that goes on means that, that you're constantly being provoked in a relaxing way to think differently, to think about accents or somebody might order a curious drink or be asking the, the, the steward about, about you know, where the wine came from. And it's always interesting, but I will say, and I'll tell this in sort of a quick Reader's Digest version, that, that one, of, one of the hidden truths of train travel is that, that people do see it as like a relaxing walk without the footwork. So they, they kind of ease in to the session, but they do let down their guard. And there was a Japanese woman of a certain age, a certain elegance, dressed differently each day, looking smart. And she had an empty seat beside her. And I wondered about that. Mm -hmm. Why the empty seat? Yeah. Was it a, a partner who at the last minute had a business obligation, couldn't be there? She was of an age that it could have been someone who had a health issue, could even, in fact, have been a loss. Yeah. For whatever reason, that seat paid for, she kept, and it was empty beside her. And she would be on this observation platform where Riley would, as a 10-year-old, get down get into the corner and for hours had the wind blowing through his hair and his eyes looking at the landscape, which is marvelous because you're in the Canadian Rockies. You got these, yeah. you know, high, high, high peaks. And then all of a sudden you're by a river and you're out in an open area and there's a, an old abandoned house that somebody once had as, as their main pride. She appeared there a couple of times and I'm a, a nosy eavesdropping kind of guy that's where i get good stories from for for writing but i never really talked to her she would say a couple of things so one she said about riley she said this trip means the world to you now and in 20 years will mean the world to him mm. and we, yeah. we sort of had that i always wanted to ask what her story was and at the very end of our trip so there was a, a time when maybe she felt like engaging a bit with me. And all she said to me was the mistake we make is we think we have time. Yeah. Whoever was to be beside her and couldn't be beside her, I think wasn't there because time had trumped and they weren't able to have the journey together. I take that to heart and we've got to stop this thing about saying, well, one day or next year, or I'll get around to it. The mistake we make is we think we have time. Don't make that mistake. And really, that is my second question, because throughout this book, especially in the middle section, I picked up on what I sensed was a theme that I so enjoyed in To Timbuktu for a Haircut. Without giving away the spoiler, you seem to continually interact with people, not just Mashiko, but others who almost everybody you interact with on this trip are people who are encouraging you to, as Warren Zevon famously said, enjoy every sandwich. Yes. I love that phrase. I think because you know, when, when I was in grade four or grade five and we first studied about the pyramids in Egypt, I've always wanted to go to see the pyramids and I have not yet been able mm -hmm. to do that. There's still, I don't know, 90 countries or so. I've, I've never had the opportunity to be doing and, and Egypt is is one of them. I will get there. I will get there. But the enjoy every sandwich, the don't let a moment pass, the kind of don't begrudge the situation. The, the, the people I met 
when I could listen to them, were telling fascinating stories about maybe other trains they'd been on or family relationships. It, it was terrific. I think for me as a traveler, for me as a travel writer particularly, but for me in a personal sense, when I'm on travels, I think my number one responsibility is to meet as many people who are different than me that I possibly can. Mm, yeah. And as a result, that's cool. That's where the stories live. And these are people who come from every source market that you can think of because the Rocky Mountaineer is like the pyramids for me on many people's dream of signature travel experiences that they would like to have at some point in their life. And I do think again, post COVID, there's a, an urgency that people feel to get out and get some of these things done. And that's a deep motivation that is very helpful in our world of destination marketers, because the appetite to travel and to travel in the next couple of years and the willingness again, to make a commitment to travel, you know, that's 12 months out, you put a deposit down that has returned. So a very motivated population from virtually every source market, whether it's another nearby state or whether it's a country across the Pacific or the Atlantic, people want to be on the move and they want to come and visit us. One of the beauties I thought of this book, which again goes from your experience with Riley, your experience with others, and then a backstory that tells us the history of the Rocky Mountaineer, which is fabulous, and railroading in general, and the expansion of Canada to the West. I mean, all of that just interwoven in Rocky Mountaineer. But there are those moments in time. I mean, you know, when you travel with family, there are the moments that you're experiencing something fabulous. And then there are moments that you're kind of just sitting in your room or in the coach or, you know, and, and nothing's happening or you're in transit. And one of my absolute favorite interchanges between you and Riley was at some point in time, the two of you were talking about designing for Riley a signature that was significant, that was distinguished. And he didn't know what that meant. I mean, he's 10 at the time. And the two of you began to work on a signature that he would use through his life that borrowed from his grandfather. And it was just, I think, one of the most heartening moments in the book. It's such a little thing, but the fact that you were together on a trip where you had some downtime, that's something that's going to transcend for decades. Well, nice of you to say that. And I sure appreciate you spending time with, with my book and, and identifying something as, as heartfelt as, as that experience. And Riley, you know, Riley was 10 on the journey. He just turned 15. He's participated in some interviews about the book and he now I'm six foot and I look up to him. Oh, wow. He's a soccer player and he's got lots of other exciting stuff in his life. He's, he's done bungee jumping a couple of times. He was river rafting last weekend. So he's a, an, an engaging fellow. As a 10-year-old, 
he would engage in things, but maybe less of a personality that had developed to the point of being truly engaging. But the signature approach is something he's, he's now, when I got a number of books that the publisher wanted signed, or there's there a bunch of books that they, the train company wanted signed for people, Riley and I, and he doesn't live near me, um, but I was, I was there with him. We went through them all and he signed them all. And his signature is a work of art in, in progress, but he gets it. You know, in today's school, cursive writing isn't taught. Mm-hmm. So what do you end up with as something to designate you as a signature? And my dad's signature was illegible, but so distinctive. It was a A and then a, just a line that, that was a, a dart. Riley's replicated parts of that. But what's important is, is he now sees the applications of having a signature and the worth of it and that people are actually interested in having him as a you know, lead persona in the book, sign their copy of it. So that's very much to the cool. Yeah. Well, as you can tell, I absolutely adore the book. I recommend it to everyone, whether you are into history, whether you're into the human condition or travel, it's just because you weave so many different uh, directions throughout, um, there's something for everyone. So Back to our world for the final question. You know, as our globe seemingly spirals into climactic chaos, political chaos, social chaos, civil rights chaos, and the threat of global war, we continue to cling to travel more so than ever. Part of that is coming out of COVID, but travel has become such a force in our world. As you travel the world, what inspires you that gives you hope that we can get past all this chaos? Well, the chaos, we may be in, in the chaos era. So it may be how we move through it rather than do we in our lifetime see it put behind us. I think one of the things that travel can do, and I, I would actually say this is a growing trend. There's some preliminary research on this, and I think destinations can do a a much better job than has been done of identifying it and and seeing it, because I I, I would say this is a trend we're at the early age of for a couple of reasons. One, aging baby boomers, Mm -hmm. and another, the seeking out of, of safe and comfortable destinations. And the linchpin in this is what I would call intergenerational travel. It's the grandparent and the, the grandchildren. It's that skipping the middle generation of your own kids and bringing this together. What one, what one fellow traveler on the train, and I write about this in, in Train Beyond the Mountains, one fellow traveler called it legacy travel. differentiating it from checkbook legacy. You die, you leave a bunch of money that goes various ways and everybody feels good about it. But what they were saying is if more of the baby boomer generation took the grandchildren generation on travels to unfamiliar places and coached them through experiencing that, they will be learning about other people become less prejudiced or less prejudging and more willing to taste different foods and not identify a foreign food smell 
as something strange, but as something appealing. Not identifying driving on the other side of the street as awkward, but something that is really kind of thrilling to see all of the world anew. So I have become a, a somewhat of an advocate for legacy travel, meaning intergenerational travel, because to leave the legacy of an open mind, which those in the, the boomer generation can have, is wonderful. But every destination looking at, at increased travel from the elder generation and a younger generation and catering to that through activated museum experiences or all manner of, of things, I think can be to the good in a troubled world. The other thing I would add more specific, I think, to your question about getting through the chaos with travel is something, and you and I have talked before about, about cathedral thinking mm -hmm. and, and doing things today that will be a benefit to future generations, some of whom may not yet be, be born. And to have that vision as they did when someone was putting the foundation in place for a, a cathedral and knowing that, that their grandchildren would be building upon that foundation. So you better, better do it well. And I've had the opportunity to, to talk about that philosophy at many destinations or destination-related uh, discussions. And, and I, I try to sum, sum it up by saying that there are almost 200 nations that call this tiny planet their home. And each of us, anyone listening to this, you, me, individually, we're but one step or two from someone in every one of those countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they may be family. They, they, they could be a friend. They may be someone we sit next to in a side cafe when we're on our travels in a foreign place. Or they may be somebody that we invite to a conference that we're involved in organizing. But they're all close. And tourism, more than any other industry, takes down the barriers to understanding. The destination marketing world is about bringing people together to share ideas and, and learn from one another and to celebrate our differences. So I, in, in India, I, I heard a, a, an Indian federal cabinet minister say this. He said, tourism sits on the right hand of peace. Ah. And, and I, I hold with that view. Yeah. And as Mark Twain famously said, tourism is fatal to prejudice, racism, and closed-mindedness. Lovely. And it's true. Lovely. The more that we know of another, we realize, okay, you're not the enemy that I've been taught you are. Yeah. That we are far more like each other than we are different. Yep. And that's that's absolutely there. I was just getting out of my, my vehicle to go to the, the, the ball diamond this morning, and there was a, a woman, um, Indian heritage, India, Indian heritage, and she was walking by. Uh, and it looked like maybe new to our country, just by her, her mannerism, a bit uh, sort of remote. And we waved, we got talking. And I said, you should come watch our baseball game. And she said, oh, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. And she was out for, I guess, her morning walk. Well, lo and behold, you know, half an hour later, our game was up and running. And I'm on uh, playing first base. And I look over and here's this woman who came to watch a game that if she grew up in India, she would have grown up with cricket, not with baseball. And there she is watching our game and she waved. And I thought, I've just made a friend that I will never see again. 
but travel is <laughs> exactly. full of right. such anecdotes and some instances. And that makes it lovely and it makes each of us yeah. uh, a yeah. better person, whether it's a uh-huh. short encounter like that that has no afterlife or it creates an awareness in you or it's something else where you sit down and you listen to somebody else explain to you their world. Yeah. So let's go to your bonus round question. And you touched upon it briefly, but I want to go deeper. And it's something that, honestly, I shared with an audience yesterday in Canton, Ohio. I am your acolyte. I'm sharing your uh, passion for a concept called cathedral thinking. Take us through what that means and how destination leaders should embrace this thought. I would say for destinations, one of the most embraceable philosophies is cathedral thinking. The notion of keeping the living generation tethered to the future. The learning that in the 1400s, 1300s, if someone asked you as an architect to design the new cathedral, you would begin that task knowing that you would not live to see it completed, but your great-grandchild or your neighbor's great-granddaughter may be doing the sketchings for the, 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 the spire when it's finally being put in place. And you, though, as the architect, would be asking yourself of, of what you need to know. What, what would your cathedral thought be? And it may well, may well come this way. We should all be involved in unfinished work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's counter to our drive day by day where we're trying to get something done and completed and off the desk and not realizing how important it is that we see some of what we're trying to do as destination marketers as ongoing, unfinished work. That would be one aspect. If you were a stonemason working on the cornerstone and thinking about future generations, you too would be looking around realizing they may have different technology. They may have better ideas. And you would know that whatever stability you felt in the years of your work life, you would know things were shifting. And I think we need to be that way in 2023 and in 2024. And I was summing up by saying that the bricklayer or the, 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 the mason working on an arch would realize what was, isn't, and what is, won't be. Hmm. And I think those two tenets of cathedral thinking, we should all be involved in unfinished work and separate from that, an acknowledgement what was, isn't, what is, won't be, serve destination marketers at every level of an organization truly well because it takes and shakes up the comfort and concepts that most people are working on, which is this sort of rapid fire, short term, you know, hotels are famous for wanting the cash register ring, not realizing that the building of a destination, the building of a tourism industry within a destination, having the beneficial community embraced tourism industry within a destination takes thinking of the long term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hotels can be famous for 
measuring the cash register ring and wanting more of that. But if you're building a tourism industry with a cathedral thinking mindset, you are realizing, you're acknowledging that the benefits of a thriving community tourism industry are in fact economic for sure, but they're also environmental. They're also cultural and they're also social. So those benefits, measuring them, identifying them, building something beyond the cash register ring takes a long-term view. And cathedral thinking is about thinking what you do today and how it will influence future generations and setting future generations up for success to build upon what you are doing. Absolutely. And, you know, that seed of cathedral thinking, I drop into virtually every community in which I work. And I got to tell you, most of them are reflective. They take it in. They're thinking about it. They're processing. And there was one destination a couple of years ago where we talked about cathedral thinking and one guy, kind of a, you know, go, go, let's, let's get to it, looked at me and he said, yeah, I get that all. Can we just build some chapels? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It is a, a, a notion. And, and in Train Beyond the Mountains, I, I write not infrequently, but not as much maybe as I, I could have or should have about indigenous peoples because the, the lands mm -hmm. there are before and they um, have the, uh, indigenous philosophies have a, a version of what you know, in a European sense could be or North American sense of the, the cathedral thinking. But it is about when you are doing something, think seven generations. You know, another analogous view is the, the people who plant a tree knowing they will never live to sit in its shade, but that tree will provide shade to someone who needs it yeah. and would not provide that shade if the person today did not right. plant it. So that I hold closely with that, with the indigenous yeah. philosophy of, of thinking seven generations ahead. And, and you're right, there, there's, there's this impetus, there's this, this drive and, and the need, you know, quarterly results. Lots of people are looking for, what did you do for me now today and help me solve my problem for next weekend? But in destination marketing, the, the greater success for people that are committed not to having two years in a DMO and notching it on the resume and going on to something else, but people who are working in a DMO and see themselves and their careers evolving within the DMO world, they benefit tremendously from understanding a long-term view, including things that will outlast them. And you and I are exhibits A and B, we can look back on things that we were a part of earlier in our careers that other people have built upon. People who have done stuff that you couldn't do or I couldn't do yeah. with a destination or with a project, but they needed their longer term view to do that. And I'd, I'd like to think that we and, and other people uh, who have had senior leadership roles have left behind strong foundations upon which other generations or people with other skills or new technology can build in ways that we might not have been able to do, but we can help in shaping their commitment to staying involved with unfinished work mm -hmm. and to realizing what was, isn't, and what is, won't be, yeah. help shape what will be. And I would encourage all of our listeners, if you haven't, just go to YouTube, 
type in Rick Antonson Cathedral Thinking, and there are several videos that you're going to be, I think, just enthralled by. So, Rick, your post-tours in Vancouver life has been fascinating to watch as you crisscross the world looking for new stories to tell and obviously the opportunity to share the gospel of cathedral thinking. Uh, your wife Janice running airports across this world has been fascinating to watch. You intimated in the last episode that Rocky Mountaineer might be your last book. I somehow don't believe that. What's next? <laughs> so, true confession. I have tried my hand at writing fiction. And it's a different gig. Oh, it is. Yeah. And, and, and I've learned that a, a common mistake for a nonfiction writer, and, and Train Beyond the Mountains is my fifth travel narrative and in my, my eighth book overall, they've all been nonfiction. So a common trait, read mistake or error or tendency for a nonfiction writer trying their hand at fiction is importing too much information, not realizing that there needs to be uh, more dialogue and, and more things that drive the action and so forth in a work of fiction. So I, I now have two works of fiction that uh, completed through outside uh, professional editing. And I'm now in the, uh, in the search for, uh, for an agent or, or a publisher for my, my two works of fiction, one international intrigue and, and, and one could be called a, a cozy mystery. And the agent for my nonfiction books has been great, but we discussed it's a different agent role in the world of fiction. So there will be more books. I, I'm, I'm not sure uh, when I can share the titles and share that they will be there. I also am writing more nonfiction, but have chosen to write shorter pieces, think 5,000, 7,000 words, and assemble them chronologically about many other things. For example, Janice and I had a great experience traveling from Tibet over the Himalayas with a four by four and a driver guide in, into Kathmandu at a time when the communist insurgent in, in Nepal was active. That I'm not thinking could sustain a book length treatment. All of us have been on journeys that support a blog or support a magazine article perhaps, or something we want to post, but it's it's rare that an experience of travel has the, the combination of tension and incident and anecdotes that, and in history and geography that would sustain a book. And also that you would then as an author have a year and a half to over several years, but a year and a half of working time to, to write and, and create into a book. So I, I am writing shorter pieces on, on that or, um, a number of other experiences I've, I've had related to, to the world of travel and, and some of it related to the world of, of being um, in, in the field of, of destination marketing. So I am, I am writing. A, it's my full-time job. I write 35, <laughs> 40 hours a week. I work on my yeah. writing. Wow. And I couldn't agree with you more. People have said to me, hey, you're such a great writer. You have such a command of the language. Why don't you write fiction? And I think I marvel at the books I read where the author can spend four pages on 10 seconds <laughs> talking about the color of the shades, the smell of the room, the lighting that, yes. and it's like, I don't mean to diminish what they do. It's like, but the story is probably 18 pages 
but they have the ability to go to 300 right, right, they can right. they can just just amazingly explain the room i know well i'm not sure i can do that but but good for you and yeah. i can't i can't wait to see what's next rick you know that we love the way you write the way you think but most of all it's that we call you friend and sadly we don't break bread nearly enough given our schedules here's to reconnecting in person sometime real soon because as machiko said as you said with buddha-like brevity the mistake we make is we think we have time I absolutely re recommend this book to everyone because it'll make you think about the opportunities before you that absolutely require your attention or you will be forever wishing that you had. And it's a pretty cool history lesson of the role railroads played in developing North America's Western frontier. So besides Amazon, is there a better way to score the new book? Amazon is great independent booksellers and Barnes and Noble have always been good to my books and but any independent bookseller now I was in in London actually with grandson Riley recently and and went to foils one of the oldest biggest uh, bookstores and there they had it so uh, around the world the book is available uh, through online now it's a an ebook as well as a hardcover print book and eventually will be uh, an audio book all right train beyond the mountains Journeys of the Rocky Mountaineer, and it's on my bucket list. Thank you very much for that. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers, this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Destination Leadership Consortium, a collection of some of the sector's top consultants that has created a symposium of CEO and board leadership called, not surprisingly, the Board Leadership for Destination Symposium. First edition last January, a raging success. The next symposium just announced for January 24, 25, 26 in Phoenix, Arizona. Designed for DMO, CEOs, board chairs, and incoming leaders, you can learn more at DestinationLeadershipConsortium.com. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, position papers on board diversity and a new model for destination development, the book Destination Leadership, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus access to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. <laughs>